This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle, and this week, Emily is traveling, so she is unable to be here, but... In her place, we have friend of the show and a previous guest, Lori Lander Goodman. How are you? Hi, Kyle. I'm great, and I could never take Emily's place, (laughs) but I'm very happy to be here um, and talk Jeopardy with you. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. Uh, If you wouldn't mind, do you want to give a quick, like, reintroduction of yourself? You mentioned it has been over a year since you were on, so... Yeah, sure. So, um, like you, I was a contestant in season 35. I played the second and third episode of season 35. I was a one-day winner, a one-day champion, and then I was beaten by you. (laughs) So, Kyle, you are my nemesis in this house. Your name is Mud. (laughs) Yes, I, you know, I, I will bear that burden. Yeah, I tried to psych you out. (laughs) (laughs) I think I psyched myself out on that episode. If you recall, I couldn't record my intro. I do recall. I was sitting there thinking, do I try to play a mind game with him? And my, you know, this competitive voice, I was like, I have the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, where when one side was saying, you know, say something mean and really break his self-confidence. <laughs> and the other side was like, you should be your nice, encouraging self. And I think I just said nothing. <laughs> well, you know, you played the middle. And uh, I mean, I was clearly very nervous. I was not at all thinking about the people on either side of me. So if you said something, I probably would not have remembered. And if you didn't, I definitely didn't remember. Th- like, I, I definitely didn't think oh, she didn't say anything to me because... I was too I was too concerned with my face won't stop twitching when I try to smile and everyone is watching me right now. Well, you were a great 7-day champion and um and I'm excited to watch the next tournament of champions. Yeah. Starting this week. Yeah, that's right. I know it's I don't know, it feels weird in this whole guest host time and pandemic time. Suddenly we have a tournament of champions coming up and I'm like I Oh my gosh, it's it's already here. Uh, yes, I am also very excited about that. Uh, Buzzy Cohen, it's going to be... I'm so excited to see Buzzy. I am a fan of Buzzy Cohen. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pretty excited to see how he does. That, that's an awesome opportunity for him. And I think it was a good choice, too. I do, too. Although we'll, we'll find out more tomorrow yeah. whether it was truly a good choice. Yeah, yeah, I suppose we will. <laughs> but that's coming up. Next week, right now, we are going to talk about the week of May 10th, 2021. This is the second week of Bill Whitaker as host. Thought he did a fine job. He was not my favorite of the guest hosts. Nor mine. He's a little little quiet, a little low energy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've been very, very happy to see that many people... um, can do this and that the game really stands on its own. Um, the star, it really, the stars of the show really are the contestants. And we had some good ones this week. We did. 
That's right. That's right. Uh, so on Monday, we have the contestants John Marsh, a pastor from Edgewater, Florida. Elise Stokes, a freelance content specialist from Silver Spring, Maryland. And Juliet Mayer, a graduate student originally from The Plains, Virginia, whose one-day cash winnings total $23,800. Anyway, the Jeopardy round categories, historic happenings. I'll fight you. Time. The 2021 World Almanac, The Plain Truth, and From C to D. We're starting in C and ending in D. I really um, enjoyed the history category. That's always a good one for me. And while I didn't get everything, I don't think I got the the um, 800 and the $1,000 level, but I enjoyed that category very much. Yeah, it, w- it was a good one. Yeah, we had a reversal at the $400 level. Uh, the clue is Saudi Arabia was changed in 1938 when Max Steinecke insisted the seventh of these at Demam be explored. Those six had already flopped. Uh, John Rangan said, what is an oil field? And that was accepted. But then later they reversed it because they were looking for oil wells. And I am not knowledgeable enough in oil geology to really know the difference. But apparently there is one. No, I don't either. But, you know, I've noticed with all of the guest hosts in terms of timing, there's there's a little bit of a pause mm-hmm. between the time the contestant says the right answer and it's confirmed. The, per, the host says, yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Someone said, you know, this is the most important part of the job to... <laughs> rule on these questions and they really want to get it right and we actually haven't seen many reversals i think over the past few weeks so it's interesting that this that bill whitaker said it was right and then had to reverse that i think they've been really careful not to do that that's an interesting point i hadn't i hadn't thought of that but but yeah that is kind of the most important part of the job because that that determines not only the flow of the game but also who has control of the board and who has the money at any given time. And he, and they can come back and reverse it later, but that changes the, the time in between that was not accurate, I guess. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So we get our first daily double in that category and it's the fourth question. Juliet finds it. And the clue is um, when a Pope did this to Bernabo Visconti, I have no idea if that's pronounced correctly. It this seems George right. of Lombardy, Bernabo, Bernabo, uh, made the messenger eat the document, lead, seals, and all. She gets it correct, excommunicated. Did you know that? Uh, I, I did get around to it. Uh, it's the only thing that kind of made sense, I guess. Uh, like, I couldn't... I couldn't think of anything else that a pope could do to someone via a letter that was bad, other than, like, you've been excommunicated, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah uh, I had no idea what they were asking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because if you're thinking, like, okay, the pope did this, but then he made a messenger eat it, I don't get it. Yeah, I can see how that can be really confusing. Right. It was a bizarre question, yeah. I thought. No, I, I, I agree. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, John is in the lead with 3,400. Juliet has 2,600. And Elise is on the board with 1,000. That brings us to the double Jeopardy round, 
where the categories are, I've been to the mountaintop, music, exclamation point, they unblinded me with science, short stories, Jacques, and Latin overlapping. They explain that this is um, sort of like a before and after, but leading to a Latin phrase. I, it took me really to the end to get what they were going for in this mm-hmm. book, but I, I did think it was clever. Yeah, it's it's not your normal before and after. You kind of have to work through multiple uh, like layers for each for each clue, which was clever. I thought that was um, yeah. I also thought that was a really tough one, but they did all right in the category. They only missed the four hundred dollar level, which was Crockett and Tubbs the other way around, and they were looking for Miami vice versa. But they they, they got all the others. Yeah, yeah, they did. And it, it was fun. I thought it was a, it, I like wordplay categories. They feel accessible in a way that knowing a random bit of trivia is not. You can figure them out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Th- those are nice when you can figure them out. Because sometimes it's just like, well, you know it or you don't. That can be discouraging if you don't know it, right? Right. Um, well, I, you know, for example, the music exclamation point category the, you know, these things are very age related. It, it used mm-hmm. to be that Jeopardy, which is geared more toward my demographic than yours. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I would know these and I would see young contestants and they'd look blank. But in this case, I was I was stumped on pretty much everything except mm-hmm. for help. Yeah. It's embarrassing. Uh, I mean, I I'm very bad at pop music and I'm a music teacher well, anytime I play trivia with friends and there's like a music question, they're always like, come on, how are you a music teacher? I'm like, I didn't go to college and study pop music. <laughs> like, I studied music of people who died a long time ago. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just really bad at it. So it's it's not just an age thing. Some of us who are younger also are just bad at it. Well, that makes me feel marginally better. <laughs> okay, good. I, although I will say I did run this category, um, but that's be, but <laughs> but that's really only because it was kind of Slumdog Millionaire in the way that I know these. Like I knew all of these from like personal experience, not just from like oh yeah, I listened to that song once. So anyway, we get the uh, second daily double in that music category at the twelve hundred dollar level. It's uh, the fourth pick of the round. Juliet finds it. She is at 6,200, Elise is at 4,600, and John's at 5,400, and she wagers 3,000 and gets the clue. The hip-hop duo tag team gave us the destined to be a classic, this. There it is. Uh, and she says, what is Woomp? And that's correct. It is Woomp. There it is. Which I would feel very uncomfortable giving that guess, because, like, I know it's whoop, there it is, but also, is that actually a word, and is it the word, or is it something else? Right, it would be so easy to miss a, miss yeah. a letter in there. Right, because it's not a real word, so <laughs> how do you know? Yeah, well, she got it! Yeah, yeah. We get the third Daily Double in the short stories category, and it's clue number 10. Juliet finds it, and... She has 12,400 to Elise's 7,000 and John's 5,400. And the clue is, 
the long and the short of 1952 for this sci-fi man, a novel, Foundation and Empire and the Martian Way, a McCarthyism allegory. And she gets it correct with Isaac Asimov. And that increases her score by 4,000. Yeah. So she is in a solid position at that point. Yes, she is. And uh, she continues to dominate that round. Uh, And by the end, she is in a very strong lock position at 30,400. But it it almost isn't a lock because Elise is at 14,200. And just $1,000 more, she wouldn't have had it locked. Uh, And John is at 6,600. The final Jeopardy category is U.S. history. And the clue is on April 7th, 1789, Charles Thompson and Sylvanus Bourne left New York City to tell these two men the results of a vote taken the day before. Uh, John got it correct with who are George Washington and John Adams, who were the first president and vice president under the Constitution. And uh, he wagered 6,500. So he goes up to 13,100. Elise wrote who are Jefferson and Adams, which is incorrect, and she only wagered 1,000 to uh, keep herself from dropping below John. And Juliet also only wagered 1,000 to not risk her luck. She wrote who are Washington and Jefferson. Uh, So she loses 1,000, but she didn't throw away her luck, so she's good. (laughs) (laughs) No, she did not. Yeah, I was thinking for some reason I got mixed up on my years and was thinking it would be Adams and Jefferson. Mm, yeah. So I was thinking along with Elise. And of course, 1789 is really the first presidential election. Right. Day. You know, I know everything about this from watching Hamilton about <laughs> 25 times once they put it on TV. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, but, but that means I don't know very much. Oh, okay. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, that brings us to Tuesday, May 11th, and our contestants are Laura Phillips, a librarian from Portland, Oregon, Jeff Mitchum, a teacher from Dixon, California, and Juliet Mayer, a graduate student originally from the Plains, Virginia, whose two-day cash winnings total 53200 And our Jeopardy round categories are Outlaws and In-Laws, Dresses, TV Title Animals, Four-Letter Synonyms, All the Booze That's Fit to Print. (laughs) Uh, Very clever Jeopardy writers. Yeah, I think just last week we had a clue about all the news that's fit to print. Or maybe it was two weeks ago, but recently we've had a clue about that. Right. Well, and the the response was newsprint. Right. Yeah. So that that's fit to print. I, I'm wondering if I was missing something. It seems like it was really just a category about writers and writing. It's not even, you know, mm-hmm. some of it is are journalists and some are are we've got a poet, we've got novelists. Yeah. It, it was pretty random. Yeah, it was just about writing, I guess. Uh, we get the first Daily Double in that fit-to-print category at the $600 level. Lara finds it. She is at $1,600. Juliet is at $3,200. And Jeff is at $1,400. And she wagers $1,400. She gets the clue. This Pulitzer Prize winner and New Yorker contributor wrote 
Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators. And she gets that correct with who is Ronan Farrow. I wonder if Ronan Farrow just feels like he turned over the world with, um, with that work of reporting. I mean, really, that was the start of, of the whole Me Too movement. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I imagine he feels like something about it, <laughs> you know, that I can't imagine having that kind of an impact on the world in a, you know, in anything that I do. So I, I can't really put myself in that mindset, but. Oh, come on, Kyle. You have millions of listeners to this podcast. <laughs> That's right. I forgot. I have the, I have the bulliest pulpit here. <laughs> the bulliest of bully pulpits. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Juliet is at 6,800. Jeff is at 3,400 and Lara's at 6,000. We get the double Jeopardy categories, classical music. Give me a C. Notable women. On the calendar. Movie theaters. And almost paradise. In that each response will start with a P and sound kind of like paradise. Which is a stretch, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, I thought they were pushing it. I thought that was really pushing it. Yeah. I thought you probably enjoyed the classical music category. There were a number in your sweet spot this week. Oh, oh yeah. This was the first one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I definitely, definitely did. We had an unfortunate miss at the $400 level. This French national anthem is heard in the 1812 overture. Lara guessed what is La Marseille, but the, the song is called La Marseillaise. And Jeff got that. He picked it up. Yeah, well, good to get that rebound. Um, yeah, and we have the Daily Double in that category. The third question, Jeff finds it, and he makes it a true Daily Double, wagering uh, 4200 which will um, bring him up to a tie with Juliet, who's at 8400 He gets the clue. Oh, I should have made you read this. <laughs> Under Schonen Blauen Donau is the German name of this waltz. And he thinks for a while, and at the last minute, I believe, he pulls out the Blue Danube. That is right. Yeah, that was. A, I was impressed that he got there because to me it was like, I mean, I, I got it immediately, but that's also because I like studied that piece. When he didn't have it right away, I was like, oh, man, I don't know how you're going to get there. Uh, but he did. Which is awesome. Yeah, well, you know, you think, for, for me, if I think one waltz, I'm going to think of the Blue Danube. Right. But the other is I um, I recognized Donau, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, mm-hmm. but as Danube. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went, okay, Blauen, Donau, that's Blue Danube. Oh, that makes sense. Sure. I, I guess, yeah. So I, I was able to pull it out before in time. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I do think that it could have been very hard to be looking at German words yeah. um, at that moment. Yeah, I would have that feeling too. I'd be like, I don't know. I don't speak this language. What am I supposed to? Yeah, I would. I totally get it. We had a triple stumper in Give Me a C, uh, the $400 clue. Harking back to the Bible, other names for it include the Sea of Lot and the Sea of Sodom. And no one rang in with, oh, actually, they rang in with the Red Sea and the Sea of Galilee, but no one got the Dead Sea. Mm-hmm. You know, I've 
had the great pleasure of floating in the Dead Sea multiple <laughs> times, and it was quite obvious <laughs> to me. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, I, I think that if you have been there, it's very salty, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. dead. It's very salty. And there are pillars. There are huge pillars of salt. Mm-hmm. And there is a pillar of salt that's considered to be Lot's wife. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, sometimes I forget how much actually having traveled to a place sort of makes those things sink in in a way that reading about them or, you know, having a general idea does not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because it makes it real. It makes it something lived. Yep. Yeah. I have a, I have a quibble with the $800 clue in Notable Women. The clue is, the daughter of Chinese refugees, architect Maya Lin, designed this Washington, D.C. monument. Jeff rang in and responded, what is the Vietnam War Memorial? And he was ruled correct, and it was not overturned. Maya Lin was very clear when she designed it that it is the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and it is not a memorial to war. It is not called the Vietnam War Memorial. Like That's explicitly not its name. Uh, And I thought it was strange that that was not... That that was either accepted and and also not overturned. Yeah, I'm not surprised that they accepted it, but it seems like that would have been an opportunity for Bill Whitaker to say, we'll give that to you, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Yeah. You know, something to acknowledge what the intention of the architect was. Right, right. Yeah, something at least, but it was just, yeah. Anyway, uh, we get the third Daily Double as the pick after that. It's only pick number five, so it's also early in the round. It's in the Notable Women category at the $1,200 level. Jeff finds it, because he just got the last one. Uh, he's at 9200 Juliet is at 8400 and Lara's at 6000 He wagers 3200 And the clue is, in an 1851 speech, this formerly enslaved abolitionist and feminist wondered, ain't I a woman? And Jeff guessed who is Harriet Tubman, but that is Sojourner Truth. Yes, it is. She is... Uh... Famous for that Ain't I a Woman speech and really bringing the experience of enslaved women into that suffragette women movement um, and the right to vote. Yep. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Juliet is in the lead with 16,400. Jeff is close behind with 15,600, and Lara is at 10,400. And the category is Books of the Bible. The clue reads, its last chapter includes wisdom from King Lemuel, taught to him by his mother, as well as the famous virtuous woman passage. And Lara has wagered 10,000, and correctly responds, what is Proverbs? So that brings her up to 20,400. Jeff goes all in, which is possibly not the most strategic bet, but he wagers 15,600 and he gets it correct with um, what is Proverbs. And Juliet uh, doesn't make a cover bed anyway. So um, th- uh, it's very interesting wagering. And yeah. she guesses what is judges. So Jeff is our champion with 31,200. Yeah. Yeah. Not big enough by Juliet. 
too big by Jeff and Lara, really. Right. <laughs> Just, but you know what? Right. It, it worked out for Jeff. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Dave Friedlander, a freelancer originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Amanda Gansky, a product ma- uh, a product marketing manager from Austin, Texas, and Jeff Mitchum, a teacher from Dixon, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $31,200. And we have the Jeopardy round category is the worst part of waking up, which for me is waking up. Uh, the measure of a film. Napoleon the Innovator. Stupid answers. A is for writer. And because we spell good, which I... Enjoyed that name of uh, the category. Me too. Well, I just want to make a comment about Dave's last name, Friedlander. So my um, maiden name is Lander. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend, Mark Friedlander, who was um, a camp counselor with me many, many, many years ago. And he was delighted when he found a camper whose last name was Freed. And a colleague whose last name was Lander, and he made us stand together so he could take our picture so he would have Freed Lander with Freed Lander. <laughs> so I've met a few Freedlanders in my life, and um, I always smile when I see that last name. <laughs> That's funny. We find Daily Double, clue number 21. Jeff finds it. In Napoleon the Innovator, he has 5,600 to Amanda's 1,000 and Dave's 4,000. And he gets a healthy 3,600. And he gets the clue, Baron Larry, Napoleon's chief surgeon, is credited with pioneering this type of medical service from French for walking. He does not get it. And it is ambulance service so Mm -hmm. he drops down to 2000 now i certainly got that it was that it was ambulating you know Mm -hmm. from french um my husband got ambulance service but i'm like ambulatory (laughs) ambulatory (laughs) surgery (laughs) Uh, i thought it was hard i thought that was hard to get to yeah yeah i could because yeah, you you get the you can get the French part, and then you're like, I've never heard of that. I've never heard of ambulatory surgery. What is this supposed to be? And and then they say ambulance, and it's probably like, ah, <laughs> okay, I see yeah. where it went from there. Yeah. All right. Well, at the end of the Jeopardy round, it's a very close game. Dave is in the lead with five thousand, and Jeff and Amanda are tied with four thousand apiece. And that brings us to the double Jeopardy categories, composers all around, word origins, birds of prey, (laughs) seven letter countries, American history, and I'll repeat myself again, too. I always enjoy geography categories and... um, the seven-letter countries, the $400 clue was fun, was Uruguay. The answer is Uruguay. And the, the clue was, this country definitely uses the most use in the spelling of its name. I was in Uruguay in 1987. Ooh. Yeah, in my wild wild backpacking through South America days. That's awesome. Yeah, so that... That one came to me right away. 
<laughs> composers. Did you like composers? Yeah, I did. It it was it was interesting uh, because none of the none of the correct responses were actually composers. You know, it was always like, what are these songs being used for? What is this music being used for? Like the eight hundred dollar clue, a nineteen seventy four march for tuba by Luciano Michelini became the circusy sounding theme for this HBO comedy. That's Curb Your Enthusiasm. Amanda got it. Uh, but they're, they're all kind of like that. It's like, here is music written by a composer, and it's used for this thing. And what is that thing? I, I really liked that approach to it. Um, I think a lot of times when it's like composers in classical music or whatever, it's just kind of like, it's just kind of straightforward. Like, who wrote this thing? And uh, it's nice to see it pointed in a more like, general use direction like things that people in everyday life would come across right i think it it also just expands the canon Mm -hmm. because if if you're doing uh, at least for jeopardy if you're going to ask about composers there's the you know eight or 12 maybe that you need to know like i have never heard anything by sibelius but I can get Sibelius every single time when he comes up on Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. I am not a classical music person, but I can get often, you know, at least 60% of a classical music category just right. because they have such a limited canon. And this introduced new names for mm-hmm. me, you know, could could rec- recognize what those sounds are. Right. So Daily Devil number two is in the American history category. It's at the $1,600 level. Uh, Jeff finds it as well. He's at $7,600. Amanda's at $9,600. Dave is at $6,200. And he wagers $4,000. And he gets the clue. In the 1850s, Chief Oshkosh stopped a U.S. attempt to move the Menominee people westward from this state. Jeff guessed what is Oklahoma, but that is Wisconsin. I assume Oshkosh would be the pointer there. Yeah, I think you needed to to pick up on Oshkosh because otherwise when you think about, you know, migration of Native Americans, you yeah. think Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I think that that was the the neg bait yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I there was a triple stumper on the following question, the $2000 clue. Um in 1853 this 14th president was not sworn in. He was affirmed on a Bible. I was very proud that I remembered Franklin Pierce as number 14. <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure you, like me, memorized the president uh-huh. when you were preparing, but it's now three years later, and <laughs> I can't get them all in order anymore, but they are a handful where I can remember them by number or figure them out quickly by number, and I got Pierce and I I got all the awe in the family as they as I called it out. And they're like, wow, how did you know that? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Something stuck from the, from the studying. Yeah, that's awesome. So we get daily double number three in the birds of prey category. It is clue number 26. And Amanda finds it. She has 12,800. Uh, and good lead. Uh, Dave has seventy eight hundred, and Jeff has thirty two hundred, and she wagers a thousand. The clue is the Guru Granth Sahib of this faith 
uses birds like the flamingo and crane to draw parallels between man and the divine. And she um, takes a guess, which is what is Hinduism, which is close, but not right. And mm-hmm. the correct answer is Sikhism. So she drops by a thousand, but still retains her lead. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was hard. I thought gettable. It's at the $2,000 level, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think it was properly leveled at 2000 Yeah. I thought that the birds of prey category, I thought it was a good category. I, I like birds. I have a bird. <laughs> and I liked that they really were diverse in the, the different kinds of praying. Mm-hmm. That we have Christianity and Islam and Catholicism and Sikhism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, that's nice. I think they did a good job of not being too ethnocentric in that. Yeah. Yeah. Emily and I have talked probably too much on the podcast about how we, we feel pretty strongly that we need to decentralize Christianity from trivia, at least in this part of the world. So I agree. Yeah. I agree. And <laughs> like, when Jeopardy does that, it motivates us to maybe learn a little more. Exactly. Exactly. If I have to choose what to study based on what the clues are typically, then... It, you know, it's a it's a vicious cycle. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Amanda's in the lead at 11,400. Jeff is at 3,200 and Dave is at 6,600. Uh, and we get the final Jeopardy category World's Fairs. And the clue, the theme of Seattle's 1962 World's Fair was man in the this era. Jeff gets it correct with what is Space Age and wagered 3,195. This is why we have the Space Needle. So he nearly doubles up. Dave wagered 6,000, but got it incorrect with what is the modern era. So he drops down to 600. And Amanda got what is the Space Age, and she made a cover bet. And I thought of Emily and her World's Fair's deep dive. Right. I know. So. It's, it's, all, it's all here. We are covering yeah. the entirety of human knowledge, as we say. <laughs> Yes, I um, I appreciate your deep dives. That's the best part of the show. Like, <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> anyway, that brings us to Thursday, May thirteenth, and our contestants are Susan Schulman, a baker from Alexandria, Virginia; Matt McAndrews, a marketer from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania; and Amanda Gansky a product marketing manager from Austin, Texas, whose one-day cash winnings total $14,000. And we have the categories for your pies only, yum, science, the daily triple, from TV show to film, numbering the nonfiction books, and deadly synonyms. That was a delicious category for your pies only. (laughs) Not... Not difficult, but um, no. made me hungry. Sure, yeah, yeah. I go for a pecan pie right now. Yeah, I make a bourbon chocolate pecan pie for Thanksgiving. Ooh, it nice. is the reason I fell in love with my husband. His oh. mother made me that pie when I first met her, and I said, "Any family that has this pie is a family I want to be a part of." <laughs> 
So well, that's, hey, a, that's a legendary pie in our family. <laughs> nice. Yeah, sometimes, whatever it takes. That's <laughs> oh, that's funny. Daily Double number one is in the numbering the nonfiction books category. It is at the $600 level. Pick number 21, Matt finds it. He's at 2800 tied with Amanda, who is also at 2800 and Susan is at 3400 He makes it a true Daily Double. Just the right move. He gets the clue. Hyunseo Lee is one of the names of the author of The Girl with Seven Names, about defecting from this country. And he gets it correct with what is North Korea. Yeah, he thought about that and pulled it out at the end. I thought it was good. Mm-hmm. You know, you had to think about where would you be defecting from mm-hmm. in Asia. He he got it. He parsed it out. Yep. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Amanda's at 3,400. Matt is up at 7,400. And Susan is at 6,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories history class, two-letter first names, a category about nothing, opera, light at the end, light in quotation marks, and the tunnel. Very funny again. And you get another good good category for you with opera. Yeah, I know. I know. They really they really wanted to just throw it at me. And I did I did run this category, which was good, but the contestants also got all of it. Susan seemed to know her opera. Yeah. Which was cool. I mean, she's a baker. That, that that means nothing to me in regards to, like, I, I wouldn't, you know, if someone says they're a baker, I would not be like, oh, then they certainly don't know opera. And I also wouldn't be like, oh, they certainly know opera, right? It's just like, okay, uh, yeah, cool. Uh, but so she seems I'm to know. I'm imagining Susan, like, with a baker's hat and flower flying, listening to opera as she bakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of see it like a scene from a movie. Yeah, that's probably what she does. <laughs> Whether she does or not, in my mind, she does. Yeah, it's canon. Yeah. If she wants to come on the show and talk about it, we'd we'd be happy to have her on. (laughs) We find Daily Double number two in that opera category, and it's the fifth pick of the round. So we're finding it early. Susan finds it, and we know there she was listening to opera as she was baking prior to the game. Mm -hmm. Flour on her nose and, you know. So she's ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is um, in the lead, but just barely with 8,400. Matt is right behind her with 8,200. And Amanda is at 3,400. She wagers 3,000 and gets the clue. Alma Viva, or The Useless Precaution, was the original title of this Rossini opera. Its current title honors Figaro's profession. And... That has enough in it to even give it to me, an opera idiot. Um, <laughs> and the answer is the Barber of Seville. Yep. So um, she moves up and continues in that category. Yes, indeed. I thought um, in the, the light at the end category, the first clue... We can drive it home with one this, maybe in song, but not according to section 24400 of the California Vehicle Code. And the answer is One Headlight, which is a wallflower song, which I think is a deep pull for for a $400 clue. But maybe um, maybe wallflowers continue to be really popular um, 20 plus years later. Maybe. 
I have no way of knowing, as I have stated already. <laughs> like, that is not an area of knowledge for me, so. But maybe. Amanda got it, so there you go. Amanda yeah. got it, yep. We get daily double number three in the tunnel category. It's at the $2,000 level. Matt finds it. It's pick number 17 in the round. He's at 11800 Amanda is back at 2600 And Susan is up at 18200 And he wagers 2000 I mean, if he doesn't feel comfortable, I, I get that. But Susan's up to a big lead. I feel like maybe a little more would have been strategic. But he gets the clue. In 1920, work began on a New York City, New Jersey tunnel named for him. It was said he could make you think of a tunnel as a mole thinks of a burrow. And he guesses what's a battery tunnel. Uh, but that is Clifford Holland. Yeah, and I was just looking. He's from Philly, which is, you know, it's certainly not the New Jersey, New York metropolitan area. But mm. it's not that far. You I, I bet he has driven through the Holland Tunnel. Yeah, probably. Anyway, at the end of the um, double Jeopardy round, we have Amanda at 9,800, Matt at 15,000, and Susan at 20,200. And we get one of my very favorite categories, children's books. The clue is... The last book Dr. Seuss published in his lifetime. It climbs the bestseller list every spring. So if you've graduated recently or known a graduate recently, you probably knew this one. Mm -hmm. Amanda gets it right. Susan needed to bet something. So um, mm -hmm. she, she really needed to make that big wager, which she did. And she gets it with what is, oh, the places you'll go. Matt, oh, it's heartbreaking. I know. Doesn't get the contraction. And he says, what is, oh, the places you will go. So he drops down and Susan has bet 10,000 and she doesn't know it. And she gets his, what is the Lorax? So Amanda pulls out a um, second day win. Yeah. Coming in from third place. To get that win, that, that was impressive. I could see if Susan thought of, like, Arbor Day or Earth Day for the Lorax. Yeah. Yeah, but oh, oh, the, oh the places you go. It, it, it was immediate for me. I was like, oh, yeah, it's that. Uh, so on Friday, May 14th, we have the contestants Kristen Crow, an online journalist originally from Fargo, North Dakota, Justin Williams, a land use attorney from Baltimore, Maryland, and Amanda Gansky, a product marketing manager from Austin, Texas, whose two-day cash winnings now total $33,599. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the art of leadership, pop culture, Montana, the stock market, thicker than water, and a call on the homophone, which uh, was just homophones. And the $200 clue, they went there last, but the $200 clue, Kristen got it. It was uh, an antlered ruminant and a frothy whipped cream dessert. She got it correct with, what is moose and moose? Which I don't know if you would have needed to say both. In my mind, if you say one, that's correct because they're homophones. Right. I don't think you needed to say it, but she started it and then they all did it. And then they all did it. Yeah. Through the whole category. And by the end, I was like, I don't know why it bothered me, but it, it did. I was like, just say one of them. But they also, I'm sure they wanted to be careful and didn't want to lose, you know, lose out on 
money because they because they didn't say both instances of the same sounding word. Right. Well, it was really would have been up to Bill Whitaker to say, you just need to say one. Yeah, that's what I, I was waiting for him to say that after like the second clue to be like, you only need to say it once. But uh, he didn't. He just let it go, which, yeah, well, Now, he, he started off today and I feel like all of the guest hosts have done this. Um, he talked about how... Alex made it look easy Mm -hmm. and how challenging it is to host Jeopardy. It really made me think about um, what it means to be an expert in something. And that Mm. Alex, you know, clearly was an expert. You talk about the 10,000 hours you need to become truly an expert in something. And Alex, of course, had many more than 10,000 hours hosting Jeopardy. I think it's it's something to acknowledge that, especially for all of these hosts who are the leaders in their in their fields, they're known that this is a particular skill, and um, mm. and there there was real expertise in what Alex did. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's a good point. So, in the art of leadership, the eight hundred dollar clue, the clue is a portrait of the sixteenth president was painted by this 34th president in 1953. And once again, my ability to remember a president by number, of course, 1953, you can also get to Eisenhower that way. Yeah. But, um, but I got to it by the number. I thought 35 was uh, JFK. Therefore it had to be Eisenhower. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Twice in one week. That studying pays off. Yeah. Daily double number one is clue number 11 in the stock market category. And Justin finds it and he wagers everything. And in fact, he does a little James Holtzauer all in move, um, which caused some muttering in my house. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine a lot of households. Yeah. And he gets the clue in 1941, Standard Statistics merged with this man's investment information publishing company. And he knows that it is Poor's, Henry mm-hmm. Poor. Um, I wasn't sure if they were going to give that to him because it's Poor, not Poor's, but I guess it's his investment information publishing company. So. Yeah. It was a an apostrophe s. Yeah, like a close enough. Like we were lo- we were asking about Henry Poor, but the company is called Poor's, like his company. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Amanda is in the lead with seven thousand. Justin is at forty two hundred, and Kristen is at thirty four hundred. And we have the categories: creature from. The Black Legumes. Ha, 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 Jeopardy. Uh, Supreme Court decisions, mashed up movie roles, and historical fiction. Um, And in mashed up movie roles, Bill Whitaker explains we've mashed up two roles. Name the actor who played both. Mm -hmm. Which... Uh, for some reason, I missed that, and it wasn't until like the third clue in that category. <laughs> what? What? What are they doing? What? What does this even mean? <laughs> yeah, I can see that being very confusing if you don't get that explanation. 
because they're things like Leopold Barnum and Sherlock Chaplin. That's yeah. <laughs> right. Really, I should pay attention and listen better. <laughs> I mean, when you're playing at home, though, there are no stakes, right? It's a lot. That's it's a lot true. less uh, less intimidating. We get Daily Double number two is the first pick of the round. It's in the legumes category. The $1,200 level, Kristen finds it. Their scores are exactly what we just heard. And she makes it a true Daily Double with 3400 Gets the clue. The drought-resistant moth bean is high in this, from the Greek for first. And she guesses what is fiber, but that is protein. Protein. So she drops down to zero, which at the very beginning of the double jeopardy round is not the worst. No, it's, it's, uh, you can come back from that. Yeah. There's a lot of money on the board. Indeed. I liked the, um, creature category. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was, I like animals, but that was also fun. We saw a really cute bird, even though it was a triple stumper <laughs> in the $800 level where, um, they showed a picture of a Nashville warbler. I guess. Yeah, it was a nice bird. Which, it was a cute bird. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, in the $1,600 level, the clue is named for a southern African region. The Damara land, one of these, is furrier than its naked cousin. That's a mole rat. Basically, any time I can mention that I have a, a connection to Namibia, I'm going to mention it. Uh, the Damara people are from what is now Namibia. So presumably, that is from that uh, part of Africa. Yeah. So what is your connection with Namibia? Uh, my brother served in the Peace Corps there for three years, and I went and visited him. But obviously he has, you know, the real experience there. But I did spend a week in Namibia traveling around. That's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Well, we find Daily Double number three, um, also early in the round, the 10th clue. Kristen finds it, and the category is Supreme Court Decisions. She has 4000 and she wagers 2400 which, if she gets it correct, will put her into second place. She, she would have needed a more aggressive wager to um, get closer to the lead. But, you know, as you said, there is a lot of money and it's early in the round. So, mm-hmm. you know, go either way. And she gets the clue. The 1995 Thornton decision said these are unconstitutional for Congress as the people have the right to choose their lawmakers. And she correctly guesses term limits. So she moves up and um, is now in second place with 6,400. The round continues. Uh, Amanda kind of just takes control of the round for the most part. Uh, so at the end of Double Jeopardy, she is in a locked position at 19,800. Uh, Justin is at 5,400, and Kristen is at 9,200. She is so close to breaking that lock, but uh, just missed it. They get the final Jeopardy category, World Capitals, and the clue, a national capital for less than 100 years. It's the westernmost capital in mainland Asia. Justin gets it correct with what is Ankara, and he wagered 4,100. It gets him up to 9,500. Kristen also got it correct. Uh, she wrote one as Ankara, then crossed it off, and I think wrote it to be a little more legible, but it probably would have been fine in the first place. And she wagered 1601, which is a cover bet over Justin. 
And Amanda missed it. She put, what is Kiev? Uh, and she only wagered 200, not risking her luck. Uh, so she ends up winning her third game. It really pays off to have that lock game. Yeah, you know, if you can guarantee that you're going to win it, you know, you should probably try to do that. I don't know why people, more people don't do that, you know? Yeah, I don't know, but it was it worked out for her. Mm-hmm. I always forget turkey. Yeah. You know, I, I was also thinking about, you know, Belarusia and yeah. then thinking, wait, is... Israel and Lebanon or those Asia. Yes, they are. Okay. It didn't even, we didn't get as far as Turkey. Uh, cool. So, uh, she will get a break for the next two weeks while we go on to the tournament of champions. Uh, and that is the end of the week. So it is at this point that, uh, we remind you that we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash potent Uh, if you want to support us financially, that is how you do it. Uh, we have some content on there. You can listen to it if you feel like it. We also want to remind you to continue uh, supporting social justice movements in your community, uh, whatever that may look like. Obviously, every we, we all live in different communities with different priorities and different people. So we encourage you to check out the kind of like databases of resources, uh, communityjusticeexchange.org, blacklivesmatter.com, uh, also the Stop Asian Hate GoFundMe. Uh, page has a lot of like local organizations that you could find uh, to actively support your own community. So check those out. All right. Uh, do you have deep dive guesses, Lori? I do, actually. So are you going to talk about Sojourner Truth? How does everyone do it? Every It's like unbelievable first try. Yes, I'm going to talk about Sojourner Truth. I don't even well, get honestly, to. Honestly, I was going to talk about Sojourner Truth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, I, if I were going to do a deep dive, that would have been it. Yeah. And I thought, boy, that's interesting and I want to learn more. And so I'm really glad you're doing a deep dive on Sojourner Truth because now I get to learn more. Um, and I didn't have the bandwidth to do the work, so thank you. Sure, sure, no problem. Yeah, I mean, there were there were a number this week that I was like, well, that'd be interesting, that'd be cool. But Sojourner Truth was a Miss Daily Double. I knew it was her. This is from the Tuesday game, Notable Women category. The, the Miss Daily Double was, in an 1851 speech, this formerly enslaved abolitionist and feminist wondered, ain't I a woman? Uh, Jeff missed it, but that's, he said Harriet Tubman, but that's Sojourner Truth, uh, like we already said. And I realized after that, I was like, I don't actually know hardly anything more about Sojourner Truth except that particular fact, which it turns out not entirely factual, which I'll talk about. Really? Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. I, I will. I will talk about that. Um, so, Sojourner Truth. She was born Isabella Bell Bomfrey in 1797 or thereabouts. Uh, her exact date of birth is not known. And she died in on November 26th, 1883. She lived a long life. Uh, she was an abolitionist and women's rights activist. She was born into slavery in Swartikill, New York, but escaped with her infant daughter to freedom in 1826. She was one of either the 10 or 12 children born to James and Elizabeth Bomfrey. A Colonel Hardenberg had bought James and Elizabeth from slave traders and kept their family at his estate in the area of New York called Swartikill uh, in the town of Esopus. 
95 miles north of New York City. When Hardenberg died in 1806, nine-year-old Truth, who was known as Bell, was sold at auction with a flock of sheep for $100 to a man named John Neely near Kingston, New York. Until that time, Sojourner had only spoken Dutch, and she later described Neely as cruel and harsh, and he often beat her, uh, often under the excuse of she didn't speak English. Uh, in 1808, Neely sold her for $105 to a tavern keeper named Martinus Shriver in Port Ewan. He owned her for 18 months and then sold her to John Dumont in West Park, New York in 1810. John Dumont was a rapist, and this caused tension between Sojourner and Dumont's wife, Elizabeth, who harassed her and made her life even more difficult, somehow. Uh, around 1815, Sojourner met and fell in love with an enslaved man named Robert from a neighboring farm, but Robert's owner forbade their relationship, and one day Robert sneaked over to see her, but they were discovered, and uh, Sojourner did not see Robert ever again. That experience haunted her throughout her life, obviously. Eventually, she did marry an another older enslaved man named Thomas, and she bore five children. Uh, James was her firstborn, who died in childhood. Diana was born in 1815, but uh, she was the result of rape by John Dumont. And then Peter in 1821, Elizabeth in 1825, and Sophia in 1826 uh, are children of Thomas and Sojourner Truth. Uh, in 1799, the state of New York began to start the process of abolishing slavery. But that process of emancipating people enslaved in New York wouldn't complete until July 4th, 1827. Uh, John Dumont had promised to grant Truth her freedom a year before the state emancipation if, quote, she would do well and be faithful. Uh, but shockingly, he changed his mind, claiming a hand injury had made her less productive. That clearly made her angry, but she continued working to satisfy her sense of obligation, which I don't I, I don't understand that because like you were enslaved you don't know anyone anything but uh she continued working to leave in good conscience i guess uh late in 1826 she escaped to freedom with her infant daughter sophia she had to leave her other children behind uh because they were not legally freed in the emancipation order until they had served as bound servants into their 20s oh my god i know right like you're all free and emancipated, except not really, because you have to stay a slave until you're in your 20s. I don't... It, she found her way to the home of Isaac and Maria Van Wagenen in New Paltz, New York, uh, who took her in. He offered to uh, buy her services for the remainder of that year until emancipation took effect, and Dumont accepted for $20. Uh, the Emancipation Act of New York was approved later that year. Truth learned that her son, Peter, who has who was five years old at the time, had been illegally sold to an owner in Alabama. And with the help of the Van Wagenens, uh, she took the issue to court in 1828, and she actually won the case. Wow. Yeah, against a white slave owner in Alabama. Uh, and so he was reunited uh, with her at that point. Uh, she had a life-changing religious experience during her stay with the Van Wagenens, and she became a devout Christian. In 1829, she moved to New York City with Peter, where she worked as a uh, housekeeper for Elijah Pearson, who was uh, an evangelist. And she became uh, friends with a number of people in New York in the kind of like Christian evangelical movement and the abolition movement uh, as well. In 1839, Truth's son Peter took a job on a whaling ship called the Zone of Nantucket. But during his time on that board, she only received a few letters from him and 
When the ship returned in 1842, he was not on board, and she never heard from him again. In 1843, she became a Methodist, and on June 1st, Pentecost Sunday, she changed her name to Sojourner Truth because she believed that she had heard the Spirit of God calling her, and she must go to travel and preach about the abolition of slavery. Uh, So she just took a pillowcase full of belongings and made her way up through the Connecticut River Valley. At this time, she also began attending a Millerite Adventist uh, camp meeting. The Millerites were following the teachers of teachings of William Miller, who preached that Jesus would appear in 1843 or 44, bringing about the end of the world. I believe these are the precursors to the Seventh-day Adventists. Um, A lot of the Millerites appreciated Truth's preaching and singing, and she began drawing large crowds when she spoke. She became known as an orator at this point. The Second Coming obviously did not happen, and she, along with a number of other Millerites, kind of distanced themselves from the movement and kind of from each other. In 1844, she joined the Northampton Association of Education and Industry in Florence, Massachusetts, which was founded by abolitionists, and the organization supported women's rights and religious tolerance. They kind of ran sort of a commune. They lived on 470 acres, raising livestock, running a sawmill, a gristmill, silk factory, and all that. Truth lived there and oversaw the laundry, supervising both men and women. And she met William Lloyd Garrison, who is a noted uh, abolitionist and preacher. Frederick Douglass, who hopefully we all know who Frederick Douglass was. Uh, And David Ruggles, who is also a notable uh, African-American abolitionist. And she gave her first anti-slavery speech in that year. That's 1844. In 1846, the group disbanded uh, and she moved on. She started dictating her memoirs to her friend Olive Gilbert. And in 1850... William Lloyd Garrison privately published her book, The Narrative of Sojourner Truth, A Northern Slave. Uh, She also purchased a home in Florence that year for $300. And she spoke at the National Women's Rights Convention in Worcester, Massachusetts. Okay, so in 1851, we get the anti-woman speech. That was when she went and uh, and joined George Thompson, who is also an abolitionist and speaker, on a lecture tour through central and western New York State. In May of that year, she attended the Ohio Women's Rights Convention in Akron, and she gave her famous extemporaneous speech on women's rights, known as anti-woman. In this speech, she spoke as a former enslaved woman, combining the call for abolitionism with women's rights, drawing from her strength as a laborer to make her equal rights claim. This convention was organized by Hannah Tracy and Frances Dana Barker Gage. They were both there when Truth spoke, However, different versions of her words have been recorded. Uh, One of them was recorded by Reverend Marius Robinson, uh, which he published in the Anti-Slavery Bugle only a month after the speech was given. And in his version, the question, ain't I a woman, does not appear. And none of the other newspapers reporting of the speech at the time mention anything about that particular question. Twelve years later, in May 1863, Francis Gage published another very different version, and in it, not only does the question, ain't I a woman, appear four times, but her speech patterns uh, seem to have characteristics of southern slaves, rather than the likely speech patterns that Truth had as being, like, her first language was Dutch, and she never lived in the South. So the veracity of the actual like speech that has the ain't I a woman question is pretty suspect. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I'll read Marius Thompson's version here. 
It is this. I want to say a few words about this matter. I am a woman's rights. I have as much muscle as any man and can do as much work as any man. I have plowed and reaped and husked and chopped and mowed. And can any man do more than that? I have heard much about the sexes being equal. I can carry as much as any man and I can eat as much too if I get it. I am as strong as any man that is now. As for intellect, all I can say is, if a woman have a pint and a man have a quart, why can't she have her little pint full? You need not be afraid to give us our rights for fear we'll take too much, for we can't take more than our pint will hold. The poor men seems to be all in confusion and don't know what to do. Why, children, if you have women's rights, give it to her and you will feel better. You will have your own rights and they won't be so much trouble. I can't read, but I can hear. I have heard the Bible and have learned that Eve caused man to sin. Well, if women upset the world, do give her a chance to set it right side up again. The lady has spoken about Jesus, how he never spurned women from him, and she was right. When Lazarus died, Mary and Martha came to him with faith and love and besought him to raise their brother. And Jesus wept and Lazarus came forth. And how came Jesus into the world? Through God who created him and the woman who bore him. Man, where was your part? But the women are coming up. Blessed be God and a few of the men are coming up with them. But man is in a tight place. The poor slave is on him. The woman is coming on him. He is surely between a hawk and a buzzard. Yeah, so no, no anti-woman. Nothing, nothing. Great speech, though. Oh, so good. Like, really good. Yeah. Concise, right? And it's, yeah, very good. But yeah, the the fact that it's called anti-woman is because, you know, 12 years later, Francis Gage gave a very different version of it. Like I said, with that, you know, the anti-woman question four times. Uh, in, In Gage's version, it apparently you know truth claims that she that her 13 children were sold sold away from her into slavery but truth she did not have 13 children and never claimed to have more than the five that she uh that we know about and gage's report also says that uh many people in the crowd were like hostile and you know jeering and you know causing problems but all of the eyewitness reports from this actual convention where that said that it was a very calm speech and the crowd were, uh, you know, they, they took to it quickly and there was not one discordant note or anything like that. So we know it as anti a woman, even though the likelihood of that being ever said in that speech is probably not true. So, uh, but, but that speech still had the very clear effect of like bringing not only Sojourner Truth's like message forward, but also kind of marrying the abolition movement to women's rights to, and especially bringing forth the plight of black women, especially in both of those movements. She gave a number of other speeches, uh, like important speeches, one at the Northampton camp meeting in 1844. Uh, she was participating as an itinerant preacher, and the story goes that a band of wild young men disrupted the meeting and threatened like violence against the group. So she went up on a hill and started singing, and the mob came and listened to her and... Try like tried to get her to entertain them, so she preached and sang at them until morning, and they left. I don't know if any of that is true, but that's the story. She spoke at the at abolitionist conventions in the 1840s, um, led by William Lloyd Garrison. There is the the mob convention of September 1853, uh, where she went to speak, and uh, a large crowd of young men greeted her with a perfect storm of hissing and groaning. She stood her ground and made it very clear that they can hiss as much as they please, but women will get their rights anyway, and you can't stop us. 
uh, as well as the American Equal Rights Association in 1867 when she addressed that group, uh, arguing for, again, equal rights not only for women, but also for uh, freed people. And then the eighth anniversary of Negro freedom in 1871. She was getting pretty old at that point and not able to travel so much, but uh, she you know, continued to talk about how, you know, obviously women were still not able to vote and not given equal rights at that point. And also, yes, emancipation had come, but there needed to be more. And it was in this particular uh, instance, this particular speech that she kind of argued for and posited the 40 acre and a mule idea that um, she tried to get passed through Congress that uh, freed former slaves would be given 40 acres and a mule out west to go and settle because at that time they'd been freed, but they were still living in the south where it was very clear that they were not safe, let alone equal. Uh, but that 40 acres and a mule idea did not did not pass through. You know, obviously after her 1851 speech, she continued on her mission uh, fighting for a more equal society, including abolition, voting rights, and property rights. You know, she spoke of all of these things as being hand in hand. In 1857, she moved to Battle Creek, Michigan, where she rejoined the former members of the Millerite movement who now had formed the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Anti-slavery movements had begun early in Michigan and Ohio, and uh, she kind of joined the nucleus of the mission, Michigan abolitionists there as well, who were known as the Progressive Friends. She lived there with uh, her daughter Elizabeth, Elizabeth Banks, and her grandsons James Caldwell and Sammy Banks. Uh, during the Civil War, she helped recruit black troops for the Union Army, and her, her grandson, James Caldwell, enlisted in the 54th Massachusetts Reg Regiment um, of the movie Glory fame. Uh, in 1864, she was employed by the National Freedmen's Relief Association, where she worked diligently to improve conditions for African Americans, and she met President Abraham Lincoln. She also worked at the Freedmen's Hospital in Washington and helped force desegregation by riding in streetcars, <laughs> which is just awesome. I mean, she was, you know, she was in her nearly in her 70s at this point. She's credited with, with a number of different songs, including the Valiant Soldiers for the 1st Michigan Colored Regiment. Apparently, it's to be sung to the tune of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Although, I guess there's there's controversy about it. Apparently, she might not have actually come up with the words herself. Uh, in 1870, she tried to secure land grants from the federal, federal government for former enslaved people, like I already mentioned, uh, which she pr pursued for a long time without success. She even had a meeting with President Grant uh, at the White House about it. In, seven, in 1872, she returned to Battle Creek, uh, became active in Grant's presidential re-election campaign, and she even tried to vote <laughs> on Election Day, but she was turned away. She was cared for by two of her daughters in the last years of life. She gave an interview a few days before her death, and... Uh, she died, like I said, on November 26th, 1883, at her Battle Creek home. She is buried in the city's Oak Hill Cemetery. And Frederick Douglass offered a eulogy for her in Washington, D.C., saying, Venerable for age, distinguished for insight into human nature, remarkable for independence and, courage, selfish, and courageous self-assertion, devoted to the welfare of her race, she has been for the last 40 years an object of respect and admiration to social reformers everywhere. What a life. Yeah. Yeah, she incredible. Her legacy obviously is like huge, not in each of these individual ways, you know, the the rights of African Americans, the rights of women, the intersection there, and of course, her impact on like our American culture as like a figure. Uh, she has monuments and statues all over the place, 
including Battle Creek, Ohio, you know, in Akron, a variety of statues in New York and, and everything. The magazine Miss, which began in, or Ms, I guess it's MS dot. I don't know if you say that as Ms. Yeah, it's Ms. Magazine. Ms. Magazine. Yeah. Apparently, Gloria Steinem stated that they were going to call it Sojourner after Sojourner Truth, but that title was perceived as a travel magazine, so they didn't go with it, which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah. uh, she had a postage stamp in her honor in, in 1986. The NASA Mars Pathfinder robotic rover was named Sojourner. Yeah, she's on the Smithsonian Institution's list of 100 most significant Americans. Anyway, so there we go. That's Sojourner Truth. A little bit more information, a lot more than I knew. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I learned mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, me too. I was like, oh, she was from New York. Well, I learned that like right off the bat. Uh, yeah, I knew pretty much nothing about her other than she was an abolitionist. And that's who she was. So, all right. Are you ready for a quiz? I am ready. Uh, I'm ready and, to embarrass myself, but we'll, well, we'll see. You start with 10 points because you guessed the topic. So you're already off to a good start. Okay. All right. Question one. The Mars Pathfinder mission from 1997, like I said, used a rover named Sojourner after Sojourner Truth. Sojourner made it to the surface of Mars in the lander named Blank Memorial Station. Whose name fills in that blank? This man was a well-known astrophysicist, but who knows if the lander was indeed made of star stuff. Oh. Uh, Would it be like Carl Sagan? It is indeed Carl Sagan. Wow! It was the the Carl Sagan Memorial Station was the name of the lander. Nice. Yeah, he's uh, his his like big famous quote from from Cosmos was we are all made of star stuff. Yeah, that's good. Nice. Okay. There you go. Look at that. 20 points. Uh, Question two. I mentioned that. Sojourner Truth used the tune of the Battle Hymn of the Republic for uh, a a noted uh, song that she claimed to have written. However, this same melody is also used with lyrics about which abolitionist's body, which says his soul is marching on. Oh. Is it John Brown? It is John Brown. You are crushing this. Yes. Uh, Before, like... Before today, I was not aware that John Brown's body was a song, but it absolutely is. And it's the tune of Battle Hymn of the Republic, but it's all about how John Brown uh, was, you know, fighting the good fight and everything. It's weird. It's a, it it's weird. weird. <laughs> like it, it kind of threw me off listening to it. Like Pete Seeger has a recording of it. You can find it. Uh, <laughs> it was strange. Anyway, 30 points. You're on a roll. Okay. Question three. Sojourner Truth lived the last part of her life in Battle Creek, Michigan. Battle Creek is also the home of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, as well as what great multinational food manufacturing company? Um, so is Battle Creek General Mills, or is it Kellogg? I think I'm going to go with Kellogg. And that is a great choice, because it is Kellogg's. Ah! Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, John Kellogg is sort of associated with the Seventh-day Adventists and also just some weird attitudes about not only like diet, but just about people in general. John Kellogg was an interesting 
figure. But yes, it is Kellogg's. It is it is based in Battle Creek, Michigan. Nice. Man, you are... Yeah, you're going to embarrass yourself, Lori. Yeah, okay. Uh, all right, you're at 40 points. Question four. Plans for the redesign of American currency are constantly in the works, as they are required by law. A new portrait for the $20 bill was supposed to be implemented in 2020, featuring Harriet Tubman. However, that plan, for some racism, I mean reason, was put on hold <laughs> by the previous administration. Along with the 20, other bills are planned to receive new portraits, including portraits of Sojourner Truth and other women's rights advocates appearing on what denomination? At least the man she will be replacing was an immigrant himself. Oh, okay. So I'm guessing it's whatever Hamilton's on. And I don't know. The $1 bill? The one. I, I'm horrible at what money. <laughs> okay, are you, you're going with the one? I'm going with the one. Okay, uh, I, could, I could be wrong. I believe George Washington is on the one. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so it's it's not that. Yeah, it's pretty sure it's George Washington. Uh, no, it is the ten dollar bill. Hamilton. The ten. Is it Hamilton though? Yeah, it is Hamilton, but Hamilton okay, is on the ten dollar so. bill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> At least I got the illusion. Right. I, I couldn't tell you he's on anything. <laughs> that was really fun. Yeah. Uh, no, Hamilton is on the ten dollar at least right now. But yeah. Um, Sojourner Truth, the plan at least, is to have Sojourner Truth and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and uh, uh, maybe others uh, in addition, like important figures in the suffragette movement, to appear together on the $10 bill. We'll see if that happens. But Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. It's uh, supposedly slated for 2026 for when the, the $10 redesign will come out. Uh, okay, so question five. In 1980... The Intercommunity Council at the University of Michigan renamed a building to Sojourner Truth House in her honor. Previously, it had been named after what oft-arrested stand-up comedian? I can give you a hint, too, if you need it. Okay. Yeah, why don't you give me a hint? Although I'm trying to think of oft-arrested comedians. Sure. Uh, this, this comedian... Died uh, in 1966 of a drug overdose um, and throughout his career was arrested many times for obscenity. Yeah, so I'm thinking Lenny Bruce? It is Lenny Bruce. Yeah. The University of Michigan had a Lenny Bruce house. <laughs> I didn't know that he had any relationship to University of Michigan. I... But he's, he's who I thought of immediately with obscenity. Yeah, I, I didn't know that either. I was just looking through, like, Sojourner Truth things. And it was like, in 1980, the Lenny Bruce house was renamed Sojourner Truth house. And I was like, what? What? Lenny Bruce? Well, there we go. That There's trivia so for you. random. Right? Well, yeah. hey, you have 50 points. Okay, so that's not too embarrassing. No, that's ex extremely good. <laughs> and the, uh, the final, the category is historical documents, I'll say. Okay, well, I, I um, have no reason not to just put wager everything. I'll do a James Holtzauer all in. Yes, because he's the <laughs> only one who's ever done that. Uh, okay. I realize that this deep dive is about Sojourner Truth, an abolitionist and women's rights advocate, yet my quiz clearly fails the Bechtel test. To bring it home, I want to ask about the Seneca Falls Convention. It was held in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, and featured many of the most notable names in women's rights 
uh, from the 19th century. Sojourner Truth did not attend, though she now has a statue in Seneca Falls to commemorate her contributions to the overall movement. The women and men who did attend the convention signed their names to a document paralleling one from 72 years prior, in which they stated their feelings and beliefs concerning the plight of women and the oppressive role of men. What is the name of that document? So I think it's the Declaration of the Rights of Women. It's definitely a declaration. I'm going to have to go with Declaration of the Rights of Women. Am I close? Mm, You are close. I think think I'm going to give it to you. It's the uh, like the official full name is the declaration of rights and sentiments rights and sentiment you shouldn't give it to me no that, that's, okay. <laughs> okay well if you say no I then don't okay. deserve it. <laughs> uh yeah or, or sometimes shortened to the declaration of sentiments yeah i read through that it is like unapologetic which i guess you know makes sense like you know we're talking about like we are oppressed and we are demanding that we not be oppressed anymore. And here's all of the re- like examples of how we are oppressed and reasons and all of that. But yeah, it's, it's like a very clear, like, men have done this. Men have done that. Men have done this. And they should stop it all. <laughs> like, yeah. it was a... Uh, and, and clearly we've, you know, <clears throat> that's no longer an issue anymore. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, not, mm-hmm. not at all. That's definitely not something we're still grappling with at all forever. Well... Lori, overall, you did very well on the quiz. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for thank you for doing the deep dive and for quizzing me. Of and course. I have to say, Kyle, I would much rather be on your trivia team as we have played trivia on the same team than play against <laughs> that's you. That's true. Thank you. I, I would also rather have you on my team than play against you, too. Uh, that's how I feel about most people. <laughs> like, you know, a lot of Jeopardy people who I interact with, I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, but yes, thank you. And, and I really appreciate you being able to come on and, uh, you know, and host with me. This was a lot of fun. It's so much fun. I really, I really enjoyed doing it and I I love listening to the podcast. So thank you. I'm honored. Yeah, of course. And thank you listeners. We appreciate you spending your time with us as well. Uh, it, you know, it means a lot because you can choose where your time goes. If you would, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using. And if you want to leave us a rating and review, that would help us out a bunch. We have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And uh, those are all ways that you can support us. Or in the very least, you could uh, tell your trivia buddies about us. We are on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week with the first week of the Tournament of Champions 2021. May your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm -hmm.